All right, another free preview for you all. This is from our second Sunday, which this month was done on the third Sunday because because we were busy, I guess. And uh, it allows you who subscribe, but if you're hearing this, it means you don't subscribe. So you too can be involved in this. Um, and uh, listeners, uh, watch us do the episode live on Zoom and get to ask some questions. So Camille had to run off to the airport and he's on the first hour of the show. So this preview is just the last 20 minutes in which a listener uh, came on and asked us if we thought this was the most polarized moment in American history. And Matt goes for a little bit and I go for a little bit about 20 minutes talking about the subject in saying, not really. And I thought it was a smart question, and I'm not so sure how smart our answers are, but you can judge that. The rest of the episode is available if you go over to wethefifth.substack.com and subscribe, which you should do, because uh, if not, you're just a filthy, rotten freeloader, and we hate you. Or if we, don't, we don't hate you, actually. We love you. But you're cheap. Okay. We, 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 we know of new methods of attack. Hey, okay, so sorry for the heavy question, but... Uh, oh, God. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's the French goodbye, right? Here it comes. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, I remember 10 to 15 years ago, I used uh, I talked to my dad about how bad I thought things were with, like, polarization, like, mm -hmm. during the Bush years and the uh, Obama years. And, and then he'd always bring up that, uh, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, there were, like, you know, political assassinations, domestic terrorism, race riots, and... But increased risk of nuclear war hijackings. And, but now oh, here it is, yeah. what, 10, 10, you know, 10, 15 years later, you know, it's, we're more polarized now and there's tons of conspiracy theories. Um, and then you got a bunch of rich morons cosplaying as revolutionary leftists in major cities. But is this, don't talk about all of my friends that way. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, are things, bad can, 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 because, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah when i was in my nihilistic phase then i used to uh, say oh stay in that phase. 2050 uh, america's not going to exist in its current form uh, and i'm worried <laughs> um matt do you want to take that i mean i take the under answer. um yeah there's uh, the millenarian instinct the apocalyptic instinct has just always been there especially if you read the aforementioned contemporaneous everything from the 60s and 70s like yeah people's brains were breaking um it's actually um just kind of thinking about it out loud thinking maybe in air quotes but like um you see similar thought patterns that happen in the 1930s especially in europe a little bit in america as well but really in europe where the intellectuals including the smart ones we're like, obviously capitalism has failed. Um, and yeah. that it's all, it's all, and I'm, you know, by them, I mean, George Orwell, but like the, the broad superstructure around them also thought the same thing that capitalism has, has failed. It's going to be a, a battle between socialism and fascism from here on out. Uh, he was wrong about that, thankfully, but, um, there was this kind of like, uh, a widespread, we're going to give up on the project. We're going to be really kind of pessimistic to the point of fatalism. Um, that happened in the 30s, and then there's World War II, which kind of sucked. So maybe they were right about a little bit of it. Um, he had a similar kind of, of sense in, I want to say the late- <laughs> World War II kind of sucked. Well, kind of sucked, yeah. <laughs> News at 11. Um, but uh, 
a similar intellectual sense, um, not even the 60s, it's really the 70s. Um, we always think of the 60s um, uh, as this thing, but it's really, I think, um, like that period between 1963 and maybe the beginning of 1975, and a lot of the real kind of revolutionary, fuck it, like let's just rip it all up stuff, um, and the mentality around it happened in the 70s. I mean, the Weathermen were like a, a 70s thing thing i think they started in the 60s but like it that's basically the phenomenon of people who'd given up on the sds were going to work within sort of the uh um superstructure of of the system to try to make a thing happen it's like fuck it that can't work we have to do this because it's all going to hell anyways um there's a similar sense of that intellectually i would say now but your dad is right, and I think Moynihan is right when he talks about this stuff on uh, some of the books that we've uh, talked about, including Days of Rage. Um, when you yeah. go back and specifically Days of Rage, yeah. When you go back and read it and see the fucking grisly sheath, and it's not just like politicized violence; it's also violence, violence. It's also like the number of cops that were killed and the number of people that were killed by cops in the line of duty in 1971 in New York compared to now, it's astonishing. Like the, it's 10 to one, um, like the numbers, it's crazy. Um, and they didn't really keep track. And they didn't really keep track. We actually know more about New York city than almost every other place. They kept better track just in the city, but the rest of the country didn't really. Um, my wife who has a company called French connection research, and I'm not talking out of school. I don't think here, uh, she's an investigator used to be a journalist. Um, she was recently contacted by someone who's making a, a mini documentary about the movie French Connection. William Friedkin just died. And so there's like a reason to kind of look into it. Not that my wife is a specialist on him, but it's kind of an interesting um, uh, coincidence. And as part of that, she like looked into the making of this early 1970s movie, which is based on uh, a Pulitzer Prize, I think, winning book by some Newsday yeah. reporters that was about the heroin trade. That was pretty interesting. Um, everything about the, um, both the making of the movie and the content of it and the content of the policing that went into it are stuff that are pure science fiction now. I mean, they would get for the movie. I mean, if you've seen it, there are some pretty harrowing, um, uh, car chases, uh, like in Queens underneath these bridges. And, um, and they got like a permit for a block. <laughs> like now if you did this there'd be 7000 cops involved in it you would have so many permits it would all be like blocked off it would all be according to code but uh for the making of the movie and just sort of and also the way that the policing was done for that these guys could sort of follow their nose for 18 months without producing any arrests um and they could kind of do this they can crack skulls if they needed to do that all of this you can't do it anymore um and a lot of the direction of you can't do it anymore um Things that could happen in the 70s can no longer happen now, and we're happy that that is the case. Um, cops could act with a certain amount of impunity. Um, the level of violence in America was just crazy, and the level of political, overtly political violence. A couple of days before the 1972 presidential election, the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington, D.C. was overtaken by the violent American Indian movement for like seven days and they held people hostage. People were getting hurt on their thrown shit out of windows. This is right before the election. Try to imagine this, wrap your head around what that would look like right now. Totally cool. Having a presidential election 
one of the main bureaus in Washington, D.C., has been taken over by armed revolutionaries for a week. We're good with that? Okay. Um, no one remembers, by the way, that the first, one of the first acts of Islamic terrorism, which was homegrown, a bunch of Ahmadi Muslims, people forget about the Ahmadi Muslims, who took over a building in D.C. and shot Marion Barry in the stomach. Yeah, Marion Barry was shot in a sort of armed takeover building in the 1970s. If this happened today, if you imagine if one of these goofballs in a Fred Perry shirt went in and shot somebody in a government building, it would, you'd have 7,000 hours in MSNBC about it. It'd be unbelievably tedious, and we'd have to... Listen, I'm sorry to cut you off, Matt, but I mean, you pointed no. out Days of Rage. The, you know, there's, a, there's one data point in that book, which is totally stunning, and you can go back, and it is actually true... The number of bombings, I think, in, in New York, was, or was the nationally, in 1970 was, was more than one a day, 300-odd. I mean, this was the, the Puerto Rican independence movement. Who, Puerto Ricans had no desire for this, by the way. The about Croatian the independence the Cro movement? There was a, a cop killed by <laughs> Croatian terrorists in a, a locker bomb. Uh, at LaGuardia, that was tried, they tried to defuse it and blew up a cop. Um, this was unbelievably common. I think the thing that makes us imagine today that it's much worse than it's ever been, and it's worse in a few th ways, I think that's actually probably true, but the, the way that we transmit this stuff, right? I mean, it's incredible to me, and this would be the argument that it's not nearly as bad. It's incredible to me that today we have Twitter, that we have Instagram, we have TikTok, et cetera, in ways of getting people into Union Square in New York City for a PS5 giveaway that didn't exist. They didn't have any, but they, you know, were beating up people that, you know, had halal chicken trucks and smashing windows and jumping on cop cars. There were like a thousand people there. You can muster that like that with one TikTok video if you have some measure of influence. Imagine the fact that we don't have terrorist movements like we had in the 1960s and 70s with the Symbionese Liberation Army. The weathermen go to Europe and Bader Meinhof and Brigada Rosa in, in, in Italy. I mean, even the English had the angry brigade who killed like a dog or something. It was just like, it was the, the worst of the, of the bunch. But every country had these movements. Um, the, what was it? The, the, even Denmark had the Blekinge Galta gang or something. They did a bank robbery and killed some people. But there was all these kind of revolutionary movements. It was that kind of stuff. Revolution was in the air, unfortunately, as Bob Dylan said. But people died. Imagine the reaction to that. Imagine the reaction to Chicago in 1968. The Democratic Convention in two areas. You have the number of people that are rioting, and then you have Daly's police force cracking their heads. Literally. I mean, like, literally, literally cracking, cracking their, their heads. heads. There was the old apocryphal story about the Chicago comp with his nightstick and the hippie who gets down on his knees and says, long live the dictatorship of the proletariat. And the cop says, I am the proletariat and smacks him in the head. And that was kind of what the temperature was at the time. And th that kind of thing is like, if you imagine any of that, we think January 6th was the wildest thing that ever happened to America. I mean, Patty Hearst getting kidnapped was pretty crazy, right? I mean, there's a million things that are really, really crazy that happened in the 1960s. I mean, 1968, I mean, you have three political assassinations, right? Yeah. And an attempt, I mean, you have, I mean, one that didn't even work. I mean, you had um, the Nazi, George Lincoln Rockwell, who was shot and killed in, um, 
I think Alexandria, Virginia. Um, George Wallace was shot. Uh, Bobby Kennedy is shot. You know, Martin Luther King is shot. I mean, this is, I mean, Gerald Ford was shot by fucking Squeaky Fromm. A member of the Manson family shot him in what, 75 or six? Five. In San Francisco? Sacramento. 75? Sacramento. The, it was Sacramento, yeah. 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 Um, there it, was, it was wild. I mean, this is completely insane that one of these things happened today because of this kind of method of transmission and the fact that there's absolutely warped incentives for people to go on TV and talk about this and say that, you know, as Chuck Schumer said, the day of January 6th, before we even knew what happened, that this was worse than Pearl Harbor. Excuse me, motherfucker. It was, how many people died in Pearl Harbor? 3,000, something like that? It was an insane number of people died. It was worse than Pearl Harbor. I mean, we get so excited about, I mean, this is a very gross thing to say that people got excited about it, but I don't think it's wrong that Brian Sicknick, the cop who died, was hit with a, um, fire, a fire extinguisher by a wild, rabid protester and died. Well, that didn't happen. It took us a while to figure that out. But there was one person on the side of, you know, I mean, I would say, because I'm on the side of reason in this, and I'm on the police's side on this, who died. And that person died of a heart attack that, uh, by all accounts, was unrelated to the violence. And there was, you know, I, I did a piece for, for Vice in which I interviewed somebody who was in the crowd that day. And I said to him in that broadcast that your people killed a cop. No, they didn't. I believed what I read. And that was untrue. And it's amazing that, look, I understand the difference between attacking the Capitol. I understand the difference of people lazily, stupidly trying to prevent the transfer of power, which is never going to happen. Um, I mean, there was more of a chance of this happening in 1923 in, in Munich than there was in, in, in uh, you know, at least they had guns. I mean, there, there weren't a bunch of people who were armed that, I mean, this is, it's always called an armed revolt. I mean, really? With bear spray? Is that what you mean? I know what you're trying to imply, that there are people with guns that stormed the Capitol. That, that didn't happen. Again, you can't say these things anymore because we live in this binary political world where it's just like, oh, well, you're on their side. I'm not on their side. I think they're fucking psychos. I think they're all psychotic. And I said the day that it happened on this podcast, they should all go to jail. I think they're, many of them are going to jail for far too long. It's kind of crazy what's happening. But the, if you compare that, if that is the, the sort of knee plus ultra of polarization, oh my God, we've seen this so many times in the past. And it's been much- And we saw it in times when, when it was very difficult to organize people. And it's very easy to do it now. It was much worse in terms of people in those other two big inflection points of the 30s and the early 70s they were talking themselves into the moral justification of armed violent resistance. We don't see that much. We just don't. Mm. We might think that we do, but we don't. I mean, there's Antifa in Portland and they can't resist um, having to do more than two push-ups in a day. Um, it's not mm. a really, I mean, they've, they've done a lot of wickedness in the world. They're bad people and Portland sucks. And I say that as someone who loves Portland. My family's all from there. Uh, and it, it breaks my heart what's happened to the, the place in part because of that. But like, I'm not scared by them. <laughs> They're not threatening me. 
Um, and they're the, Port- the Portland people in their hoodies and uh, yeah, no, black masks. Uh, no, I feel confident. Well, they, all look like, they, they all look like you know the czar's children, like they have anemia or something. These like little wirely wiry people. It ain't the Portland I grew up in, man. Like uh, I don't, I don't think a lot of those guys were intertubing on the Sandy River. <laughs> no, um, but no. like also you were crying on the banks of the river, man. Uh, also, I don't think that we're seeing uh, even the same level of kind of. Um, uh, even fringe discourse about the need for armed rebellion that we saw in the mid nineties um, after, especially after Waco and, and up until uh, Timothy McVeigh. And there's this sort of weird moment of a lot of people were getting uh, into militias and, and these types of things. You just don't actually see a lot of soldiers for this so-called civil war. No, you, you could see very, very those <laughs> soldiers in 1972, it was still a, a fringe minority, and it was a bunch of different competing esoteric fringes, uh, you know, with made up names like the Symbionese Liberation Army. Yeah, yeah, whatever. They demand freedom for Symbonia. Uh, no, but Matt, the, the thing, the thing that's that, yes, it was a small minority. I wrote a piece about this for for um, the Daily Beast a long time ago. The difference is the number of people that were involved in those movements who are now teaching children at universities is astonishing. That is true. Like literally, people who got out of prison. For acts of terrorism, particularly the Brinks robbery job in Nyack, and I guess that was 81, um, two of whom went to Columbia Teachers College. I mean, not went to, went and taught there. I mean, Bill Ayers is teaching at universities. Bernadine Dorn was teaching at universities. Mark Rudd was teaching at university. All these people went on to teach in universities. We gave them a pass because, well, you know, they had the right instinct. And then the other thing that happens, Matt mentioned um, McVeigh in Oklahoma City. The incredible thing about the narrative of that at the time, and Jesse Walker, uh, Matt's colleague, has written wonderfully about this for many, many years, but the incredible narrative at that time was that this was the rise of Christian nationalism because there was a desperate need to offset some of the past issues with terrorism, extremism on the other side. And the incredible thing is that Timothy McVeigh, until he took his dying breath in that gas chamber said, I'm an atheist. Yeah. I'm not a Christian. Who's saying this, that I, this is a Christian kind of thing? I, I, or, well, it was pretty obvious, was that there were people that were desperate, as we were talking about with the guy in Argentina, when you don't understand something, you take the thing that you hate the most. In that case, it was Donald Trump. In this case, it was like you know, the, the Christian right or you know, the militia movement, which was inflected with a right-wing Christian nationalism and say that that was what motivated Timothy McVeigh. Well, it wasn't. And Timothy McVeigh was very clear about this, and it was not a coincidence that at the end of his life, he had one pen pal who was his best buddy and who made apologies for the most gruesome murderer. He killed how many children? There was a daycare within that building that blew up you know, countless numbers of toddlers. It's a disgusting act. Gore Vidal, the left-wing nutcase Gore Vidal, said he was a patriotic boy and had all this incredible stuff that he said about him. Um, Look it up. I mean, he went completely insane and became a Timothy McVeigh defender because McVeigh was not a Christian. He was doing it and he was talking about, you know, American empire and things like that. So the things that, that you think you know about these things are often, I'm not saying you, Michael, I'm just saying, you know, in general, things that people think they know about these things oftentimes turn out not to be true and they remain in the mind for so long. And I'll give you one final thing uh, before I know we have to go. Is that I, this is a totally far afield thing, but it's a similar kind of instinct. 
I was talking to somebody last night at this dinner party because I, I just happened to be going down this rabbit hole about Joan Crawford, sure. like a true gay man. <laughs> I'm, I'm the straight man who, you know, is the one straight man who's like looking at things at Joan Crawford. Uh-huh. Mommy Dearest, which I saw when I was a kid with my mother about the hideous monster Joan with Crawford. With your mother. With my mother, yeah. She was like, look it, I'm not, I, I allow normal. you to have wire hangers. <laughs> I was like, thanks. Huh. Um, but th- it turns out when you do a deep dive into that, that Christina Crawford, her adopted daughter, she had five adopted children, who wrote that book, kind of made the whole thing up. And all of her other kids were like, are you, no, that's not true. And Faye Dunaway, who played Joan Crawford, was like, oh, I don't believe it at all. And that was like a movie that basically ruined her career because it was so hilariously overacted. But the incredible thing that when you think of Joan Crawford, me, anyway, it's like, oh, she was like that abusive, crazy woman. And as somebody just popped up in the comments, like, Christina was a nut. And that has set the narrative about this poor woman, who probably was a nightmare anyway, but was she somebody who beat the shit out of her kids and screamed at the top of her lungs and tortured them? Apparently not. I, I mean, I've just went down this little rabbit hole and the number of people who were like, oh, who were very close to her, and in the family, who are like, no, that didn't happen. You know, Woody Allen's kid, who was like, no, that didn't happen. There's always multiple sides to these things, but this narrative setting is so important for people who have an idea about the world, not about this instance, not about, you know, when it comes to Timothy McVeigh, it's like, we wanted to have an idea about Christian nationalism being this ascendant terror movement, and you had one of the most hideous terrorist attacks in American history, and then 9-11 takes it over. But at that point, it was the worst one. And was Chris, was, was, was he, well, he was probably a Nazi, by the way. He loved the Turner Diaries. Was he a Christian? He was an atheist. So why talk about, the, just talk about the Nazi thing then? Then you can say, you know, all sorts of stuff. But they just went too far because the narrative was the most important thing. And that is always the case that now is worse than it's ever been because Donald Trump is worse than anybody's ever been. He's a clown. Is he worse than? No, he just says things that people normally didn't say. Has America been a worse place for that? Well, one of the things that we tried to do is to say one of the great myths was at the beginning, the first year of Donald Trump's presidency was tallying up the number of hate crimes that happened under under Donald Trump because of Donald Trump. Apparently, he gave everybody a green light for hate crimes. And that turned out not to be true. And I don't mean that I'm like a conspiracy. I mean, I looked into this. You know, the number of backward swastikas that we saw in New York City that first week was pretty amazing. Couldn't believe that the Nazis didn't know the way, where their symbol <laughs> went. But, you know, who knows? All right, we, anyway. have, we have to go. But thank you, everyone. Thank you, Camille. But thank you, Michael, for that question. It's a very good one. It's really interesting. But really, um, because of Camille. <laughs> yeah, it's Camille's fault. Um, we love you all. Some of you probably we don't like. like it's not true. Record. Not true. Yeah, I mean, if you're, there's probably some bad people in there. Too. Nope. We just don't know who they are. All, I mean, I can see from the face. I can tell which ones are bad. All the people on our side are good yes. people. I'm looking at you, Declan. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just like the name Declan. Yeah, all right, guys. Name. It, was, uh, it was very fun. And we will see you um, next month, right? Yeah. Right. We'll see you next month, but you'll hear us very, very soon. Yep. Bye, guys. Bye, everyone. <laughs>